Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. The book of Acts last Sunday, just this past Sunday, and um, the week before that, I did a message on repentance, I think it was the week before that, where Paul talked about when he was giving his farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus and uh, making his defense, uh, basically saying, you know, my, my hands are clean, you know, I'm going to miss you guys, and probably not going to see you again, but I have not withheld anything from you. I've given you the whole counsel of God, just like I have everywhere, urging men uh, toward repentance toward God. And this was the message, how repentance is not just from something, it's toward something. And so, uh, really, I should have followed that up with this message um, uh, the following Wednesday, but I didn't. We went a, a different direction. I think I talked uh, about some obscure passage from Jeremiah instead. And uh, Anyway, I want to I read uh, tonight, we'll, we'll, we're going to look at a uh, prayer of repentance. And I'm going to read from a psalm. Does anybody know which psalm? In fact, in the psalms, it's in, is listed... 51. Excellent. Excellent. Psalm 51, a prayer of repentance. That's actually the heading of this psalm, in my Bible anyway. I will read it. I will read the entire psalm, and then we will go through it and make some, make some comments. Psalm 51 says this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the inward part you will make me to know wisdom. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me... By your generous spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the guilt, the, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall cling, uh, uh, shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and with whole burnt offering. Then, and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Now, uh, if uh, your Bible has any headings or introductions at all to this psalm, Uh, you know that this is a psalm that David composed after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin with Bathsheba. David, the greatest king of Israel, the sweet singer and psalmist of Israel, 
David, the man after God's own heart, the slayer of Goliath, uh, stayed home when, during a time of year when the kings went out to battle. And while he was lounging on his roof, he looked over at the neighbor's roof, saw this beautiful woman bathing, invited her over to his house, uh, and they hooked up. And she got pregnant. And he, in an effort to hide and cover up the sin, invited her husband, who was one of his soldiers, Uriah, a Hittite, invited him back uh, to the palace to give him a report on the battle. And, hey, while you're here, why don't you go spend the night with your wife? Thinking, well, he could go... uh, Uh, spend some time with Bathsheba, and then he wouldn't be suspicious that she was pregnant. But he was so loyal to the cause of Israel and to his soldiers and really to David that he would not. He spent the night sleeping out on the porch and said, I can't do this. I can't go and enjoy intimacy with my wife while while my men are out there in the field. And so he said, all right, go back to the field then. And he gives him a note. You remember this, right? He, He says, carry this note, by the way. It's sealed. Don't read it. Carry it to Joab, the general. Uh, and uh, let him let him deal with it. And the note said what? It said, put Uriah up at the front so that he gets killed in battle. This is, and you've heard me probably talk about this before. I believe we are going to meet David one of these days. I believe we're going to talk. And so it's kind of a weird thing. It's kind of an uncomfortable thing to know this about somebody. Somebody that we're going to know one of these days. And yet it's there written for all of us. But this is a horrible thing. This is David. This is the best king. Even long after this, Jesus himself is referred to as the son of David. Many Jews, many Jews, perhaps most Jews, who were anticipating the Messiah were looking for essentially, and I use this term very loosely, but just so you get the idea, they were looking for practically a reincarnation of David. They wanted David to come back and lead Israel in a revolt against Rome. David was still the ideal. All right? David continued to have the best reputation versus somebody like Saul. He was the first king of Israel, and he started out great guns. He was a beautiful man. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He did some great things, but he turned petty, and he turned jealous, and he turned selfish very early on. And it suddenly, be, the, the guy who originally started hiding out from the prophet because he was embarrassed or reluctant to be anointed king, suddenly being king became the most important thing in his world. And then his son becoming king became the most important thing in his world. Uh, and the kingdom was taken from him. Saul was a compromiser. What did Saul do that was so bad? I mean, he had these outbursts of anger. He threw a spear at his son, but he didn't end up actually killing him. He threw a spear at David, but he didn't actually kill him. Uh, he offered a sacrifice to God before they went into battle because he was impatient and, and a, a bit fearful, waiting for the prophet who should have come and offered the sacrifice. Compare that to what David did. He committed adultery, blatant adultery, and then had uh, her husband killed. He was a murderer. And when Nathan came and told him this sweet story about a rich neighbor uh, who had plenty of sheep uh, taking the pet lamb from a neighbor to slaughter and feed a family who came to visit, David was furious and said, you tell me who this is. They're going to pay fourfold. I'll, I'll wring it out of them. And Nathan said, it's you. 
God has withheld nothing from you, and yet for some reason you weren't satisfied, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, David is the king. I want to appreciate just for a moment how brave Nathan was in confronting David with this, because the history of Israel and Judah is full of kings who would have immediately thrown the prophet in jail. What was David's response? David's response was Psalm 51. So when we read this psalm, we're not reading. This is a beautiful psalm. It's powerful. It's deep. It's one of the well-known psalms, one of the better-known psalms. But it really does take on a depth and a poignancy when you understand the circumstances under which it was composed. This is not just an arbitrary uh, or random prayer of repentance. This is a man who is in the depths of grief and conviction over a very specific sin. And this is what he writes. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to. Now, stop right there for a second. This is David. And I want you to be honest. I think we all know better. I'm speaking to a room full of of mostly fairly mature believers. And when we go to pray, and whether we are asking for something, whether we are repenting, uh, whatever it is, we generally know better. But there is a tendency, I believe, in everybody to, toward self-justification. And this is David, once again. This is David who has led Israel to finally inhabit all, practically the limits of the borders that God had set for them when Joshua first led the children of Israel into the land of promise. He has won the great victories. He has been the leader that they have longed for. He is God's man. He is, again, the slayer of Goliath. He has done great things, and he has been brave. He has has been a stellar king. But when he goes to God, he is not saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Cut me some slack. Look at all the good I've done. Can we weigh this one moment of weakness? God, come on, you know. You know what man is made of, and you know what woman is made of, and you know what kind of guy I am, and this girl is beautiful. You kind of can't blame me, right? So cut me some slack here, and remember Goliath. Remember the battles I've won. Remember my faithfulness. Remember how I honored King Saul even though he was trying to kill me. Forgive me. Have mercy on me according to my prior record. That's not what he's leaning on, is it? And no matter how good we are, that cannot be part of our plea to God ever. We don't earn points that we can balance. You know, I did, uh, as you can probably tell, it's been a while, but I did Weight Watchers very successfully one time. Uh, this This was a number of years ago. But one of the things I really liked about it, because I was a runner at the time, was you got to eat a certain amount of food a day, and every food equals a certain number of points. You can have this many ounces of this, and this is two points. This is three points, and a banana is this, an egg is this, a salad is that. But if you got an hour of vigorous exercise, that was 10 extra points you could eat in a day. And you better believe I went out and got that exercise every day so that I could have the points, so that I could eat. 
And that's kind of how we view sin sometimes. Well, I'm going to be extra good here so that I can earn a little slack in this area. And that's not how sin works. That's not how repentance works. That's not how God's economy works. And David knows this. I love that opening request there. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to what? Your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. What is he throwing? His, what, his whole hope is on nothing but the goodness and the mercy and the patience, the long-suffering of God. He's got no other hope. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. Now, we've seen three different words here. Iniquity, sin, and transgressions. Um, and this is worth unpacking just a little bit. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but it's something that we need to understand. And he develops this just here in a few verses. In fact, if you skip down to verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Uh, And in that sense, the sin is kind of the middle word. Sin kind of covers it all. Sin is transgressions and sin is iniquity. But iniquity is actually the condition. That is the sin condition. And when David says in sin, uh, in iniquity, my mother conceived me, what he's recognizing there is the doctrine of uh, original sin. I am a sinner by nature. I've been a sinner from my mother's womb. This is the the nature that I inherited really from who? From Adam. And it is that nature that actually pulls us towards sin, that makes sin attractive to us. The actions that we do, the particular sins we commit, those are transgressions or trespasses. You see? It's the condition of iniquity that moves us toward transgression. And David is acknowledging both. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. In other words, this, what's he saying right off the bat? This is a heart problem. The problem is who I am on the inside. I am dirty. I'm polluted. And I need to be cleansed. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. There's a, a phrase that I have made fun of before, and I, and I kind of continue to make fun of it. But uh, this, this I, people say, well, who am I? I'm nothing. I'm nothing but an old sinner saved by grace. And I don't like that. Because as a New Testament believer, I do not believe that's what my identity is. You understand that? Paul tells us very clearly that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. This is what Jesus talked about in John chapter 3. The new birth, except a man be born again. This is Jesus saying as clear as he did anywhere else that the problem is who you were born as. You were born a sinner, so you need a new birth. You need to become a new person. 
The problem isn't what you're doing. The problem is who you are. And David is acknowledging that here. So when somebody says, well, I'm nothing but an old sinner saved by grace, sometimes I want to scream and say, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, if you've confessed your sin, if you've made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, if you received the finished work of Jesus Christ as payment for your sin, then that's not who you are. Who you are is a saint. Who you are is a born-again uh, a born again man or woman of God. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and you are clean before him. You are now among the righteous. This is something... Uh, I, I pray it every day. Riley and I on our way to school, I pray over him. I pray over our family. And I, and I say, thank you, Lord, for the promises you've made for the righteous. And I thank you that we are the righteous because you've placed us in Christ and he is righteous. That is the basis of all our prayers. But I still, even then, this is an Old Testament prayer. This was before the new birth was a reality. So we've got to kind of keep that in mind. And yet there's a sentiment here that we can't afford to get too far from which is the fact that we were indeed sinners before grace saved us. And now I'm thinking of the line from uh, that Norman Greenbaum song, Spirit in the Sky. You remember that? That pseudo-Christian song from the 60s, early 70s. Jeff turned around. I knew I'd get Stuart's attention on that one. (laughs) Going up to the spirit in the sky. That's where I'm going when I die. When I die and they lay me to rest, I'm going to go to the place that's the best. Anyway, there's a line in that song that says, I'm not a sinner. I never sin. I've got a friend in Jesus. Every time I hear that, I'm like, what? I'm not a sinner. Okay, in terms of your identity, gotcha. Do you really never sin? Everybody close your eyes for a second. Everybody close your eyes. And get your hand loose, because I want your neighbor to hear your hand moving. Get your hand ready to raise, just in case you're one of the few. First of all, very quick, up and down. How many of you are saved? How many know you're a believer? You're saved. All right, put your hand up, put your hand down. Keep your hand there, ready to raise again, just in case. How many of you have sinned since you got saved? Three of you. No, I'm kidding. It looked like every hand went up. All right, you can open your eyes. My hand went up, too. I would love to say I never sin. I would love to say that my appreciation for my salvation was so great that I have not sinned since that day. And there are some scriptures that I read that are very convicting, especially in the letters of John, that make me wonder how, fall, how short I'm falling of the, of the expectation of God. But the fact is, we carry in us the stain of the sin nature. Even though we have a new nature, we carry around in our flesh some of the remnants of that. And our flesh is still drawn to sinful things. And so we do sin. And David, even though, again, because of the time in which he lived, he could not be a new creation, a new creature like you can, like I can, he still got it. He still understood that all forgiveness was based on the mercy and the goodness of God and the kindness of God. But he also knew that he was conceived in sin, that he was drawn towards sin. And there was a difference between the sin nature and the choices he made. Now, then he says uh, uh, in in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The hyssop there is a reference to a couple things. One, uh, probably, if you remember anything, you remember that hyssop was the branch that they used to apply the blood to the doorposts and the lentils during the the Passover, the original Passover, uh, the Exodus 
story where the angel of death was going to come through the land, kill the firstborn in every household, and the, the Israelites were commanded to apply blood, the blood of the innocent lamb to the doorway of their home. And when the, Israel, uh, when, the, when the angel of death passed through the land, the Israelites would be spared when, he, uh, when the angel saw the blood that was applied with the hyssop. The other application, the other uh, reference to hyssop has to do with the cleansing of lepers. It was hyssop that was used to sprinkle. They would dip it. They would mix it with the blood of a, of a bird and they would spray, the blood of cleansing would be sprinkled on those who had been healed of leprosy but still had to be pronounced clean before they could enter the fellowship and the community of the believer, the Old Testament believer. And so this is a reference to the, the cleansing of the leper and the passing over of God's judgment in the, term, uh, 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 in the, uh, the, the death angel in the, in the uh, Exodus and the Passover. Uh, but he's recognizing again that his need here is to be cleansed, to be clean. Hide your face from my sins, verse 9. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This, I think to me, this is the heart of the prayer. This is the thing that moves me because David is not expressing his concern in this prayer that God's blessings are going to be withdrawn, that his protection is going to be withdrawn. God had prospered David. He had absolutely led him in victory. He is enjoying the favor of God and the favor of man as a result of that. Uh, He's a blessed man, and yet he's not crying out specifically for the blessing, the protection, the favor, the healing, the prosperity. What's he want? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't cast me away from your presence. This is what is most important to David, just being able to fellowship with God. Listen, I've got a son who, man, we're wrestling with some things with him, but one of the most precious memories I have of Riley and, uh, and I still see echoes of this. But from the earliest time when he would do st- something stupid, something wrong, something to incur the wrath of dad or mom, which was about three times a day. No, it wasn't quite that bad. But whenever he knew he was in trouble, what he wanted more than anything else was Reconciliation. It wasn't privilege. It wasn't anything other than to know that we still loved him. And so he would run to us crying and want a hug. No matter how uh, terrifying the spanking was or anything else, he wanted to know everything's okay now. You still love me. And this is what David's cry is. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And you'll see even later... Uh, when, when David was confronted by the angel because of the sin he committed when he took the census, and that's a whole other story. I'm not going to go into it now. But judgment was going to fall, and the, and the angel gave him a choice. And he said, let me just fall into the hands of God. You, you choose. I, I, I don't, don't let me fall into the hand of man. Let me fall. I'll, I'll endure any punishment. Just let it be from the hand of God, not from the hand of man. 
then. So you'll see, if you, if you look at this, reading from, from verse 1 down through verse 11, his prayer has been the prayer of cleansing, forgiveness, deliverance. Thank you, Father. P- please, Lord God, don't leave me. Don't abandon me. Do what you must, but make me clean. He's acknowledging his guilt, his deep, deep guilt and conviction because of what he's done. Then, in verse 12, he begins to pray for comfort. And that's important because he's not saying, Oh God, I feel terrible, make me feel better. He doesn't start with this prayer saying, I did this terrible sin and I feel so bad, so Father, address my feelings, make me feel bad, or make me feel better, make me, make me comfortable again despite my sin. Help me not to worry about my sin. No, cleanse me from my sin first. Make me clean. Then, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. You ought to highlight that verse because... He has spent, again, 11 verses praying for cleansing, forgiveness, having his sins, his transgressions, his iniquities blotted out so that he is in right standing with God. And then prays, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Just like he knew before he had fallen into this sin with Bathsheba. Then what? Then I will teach transgressors your ways. We've talked many, many times. This is a year of giving, right? And one of the bedrock principles that I think is just, it's loud and clear in the Bible is you give and God sees to it that it is given back to you even more. You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow. And so we encourage you to give, to open up the doors, the the gates of heaven, pour out so that God will pour out blessing there's not room enough to contain. He's faithful, right? God gives more than we give. And what we've talked about, the, the, an, a core principle of the prosperity message as we preach it at Living Word is what? It's that God doesn't give us anything just for us. Everything he gives us is a tool. Our health is a tool. Our wealth is a tool. Our gifts our relationships, everything that God blesses us with, he expects us to use for the kingdom. Not that we can't enjoy it in the meantime. But this, but this principle goes all the way back to Israel. He told Israel he was setting them in the midst of these pagan lands so that these pagan lands would be drawn to his goodness toward Israel. They never got it. Sometimes I wonder if we're not getting it. But the fact is that God blesses us to be a blessing. He blesses us so that people will be drawn to the God who blesses us. And this is David's heart's cry. Cleanse me. Make me clean. Forgive my sins. Forgive my my very iniquity, the very sin nature in me. Turn your head away from that and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation, then I can go back to relaxing and being king. No, then I will teach transgressors their way. 
What's he crying out for? I still want to be used. I still want to be a preacher of righteousness. I still want to be the one who is leading people into a right relationship with the God of Israel. That's a beautiful heart. That is a beautiful thing. I want to be in right standing with you, not just so I can get my healing, not just so I can get my bills paid, not just so I can get my deliverance for my relationships to be healed. I want all that so that I can lead others into this same measure of healing, deliverance, prosperity, protection, and salvation. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. He recognizes. Notice, I love that too. He doesn't try to dodge. Well, I didn't really kill Uriah. I just sent a note. Joab really didn't kill Uriah. It's still the enemies of God that killed him, but no, David knows he did it. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And this is what I'm thinking, you know, as we, as we come up on uh, Holy Week, And thinking about the crucifixion, I was having a conversation with uh, another pastor this morning about that. You know, we've got this beautiful cross in here. I think I've talked about this before, and I'm, you may hear me talk about it in one of the next two Sundays here. I can remember as a young Christian in high school reading certain tracts and uh, uh I won't name the author or anything. Many of you would be familiar, but one of the things that uh, that I found offensive, I think, because of what I was taught, uh, and some of these tracts had a very strong anti-Catholic bias. And I've got issues with Catholicism. Don't get me wrong. There's something I could never be a Catholic because there's things that Catholics believe that I just can't. But one of the things they they have uh, is the crucifix. We have a cross, they have a crucifix. You know what the difference is? The crucifix shows Jesus hanging on the cross. And uh, that used to bother me because I'm like, Jesus is off the cross. The cross is empty. Well, you know what the important thing is? (laughs) Is the grave is empty. The cross is indeed a place of death. And I love this. I would now, I'm not advocating we take that down or I'm not advocating we, we turn that into a crucifix. That's not what I'm saying. That's pretty gory. What I'm saying is, David recognized. Now, and be careful here. Be very, very careful. Because you can say, well, I get it. David is really cut to the quick there because he just killed a man to cover up a terrible sin of adultery. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I've never done that. But David is saying, deliver me. From the guilt of bloodshed, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. When we look at the cross and remember that he had to hang on that cross to buy us back from the bondage of sin. If we miss it, if we look at that and think, did he really have to die because my sin wasn't that bad? Wow, we are really, there's a huge gap 
between the way we see our sin and the way God sees our sin. But if we can get a glimpse of that, and really, I think I said this recently, the only way we can get a glimpse of it is at the crucifixion. The passion of Christ, the fact that he did have to hang there, not just for a sin like this, but for your sin, for my sin. And when we realize that he did that, and we realize he's forgiven us, we realize he has indeed delivered us from the guilt of bloodshed. Who do we think we are if we do not sing aloud of his righteousness? Who are we? And I'm pointing at me more than anybody else. I'm a very conservative guy. All right? And so maybe I'm covering myself here. I'm not saying you have to lose it. I'm not saying you have to turn somersaults. I am saying, though, when, when we're singing of the righteousness of God, of his goodness, of his mercy, you ought to at least be singing. Sing out loud. Clap your hands. Move a little bit. Smile. Look up. Close your eyes. Raise your hands. Express yourself because God has done marvelous things for you. And finally, praise and worship team, you can be coming up here while I wrap this up. Verse 16, you did not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. Really? God doesn't desire sacrifice? This is the Old Testament. David is the one who wrote, I love your law. It's more precious than gold to me, more precious than honey. I love your law. And the law is full of, exa- of God's requiring sacrifices, blood sacrifices. But David knows something about the sacrifice that the Pharisees in Jesus' day did not know. Is that God doesn't desire those things, even though he requires them. The only good the sacrifices did, if they did any good, were if they represented the brokenness of the people offering the sacrifice. The Pharisees were such legalists, letter of the law. We're okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But so was most of Old Testament Israel. Well, we'll pay the price. We're going to sin, and then here's our lamb, here's our bird. We can afford to sin because we got this. And David's like, these dead animals and the blood and the smoke, none of this in itself pleases God. The sacrifices of God, verse 17, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of what? Of righteousness. With burnt offering and the whole burnt offering, then, and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. In other words, let's get this thing first. What does really please God? What really pleases God? Let's walk in the precepts that he's given us. The sacrifice is how we live. And then the bulls and the goats and the birds and everything else, these are just expressions of the life we are living, the life we are leading, the life we are living before God so that our life is our actual worship. This is what pleases God. And then the sacrifices themselves. What is the sacrifice we offer today? We bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. It's not the songs themselves that please God. It's when these songs are an expression, an exclamation point. 
on the life that we're leading to, to please God. And what does that life include? It includes a vocal appreciation of his righteousness, his mercy, right? And an active participation in teaching transgressors his way. Stand up with me. This is a great time of year to be thinking about this. There's never a bad time of year to be thinking about it, you know. Uh, We're coming up. uh, We've got... uh, Palm Sunday this weekend, right? Am I doing my math right? This is Palm Sunday, right? And then we've got the Hagans coming. Uh, and then we've got uh, Resurrection Sunday the following Sunday. And historically, that is the most well-attended Sunday of the year. I encourage you to invite somebody. People are more inclined to come on Easter than any day of the year. Ask your, your neighbor, your coworker, somebody, hey, what do you do on Easter Sunday? Come to my church. I don't really go to church. Never been to my church. Come check it out. I promise I'll preach good because I will be prayed up and I will allow God to speak through me. All right? But this is one of the ways that we can reach out to the world. One of the ways that we can honor God by teaching transgressors their ways is simply to bring them into the house, bring them into the, the meeting house, the house of worship, where they're going to be around people who love the Lord. I believe they're going to sense the presence of God before a word is spoken from the pulpit. But let's make it our goal. shift our priorities around to the things that David expressed in this song. You know, I'm for your faith. I'm a big, I'm a big believer and preacher on healing. I absolutely agree and I pray for your prosperity, your provision, and your protection. But I also pray for your usefulness, your submission to God's will, for you to be absolutely committed to his purpose for your life during the short time that we are here. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say a prayer here and we're going to sing a song. I believe everybody in here is saved, but first of all, just in case, if you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, get in on this. This is what this is all about. Jesus Christ died so that your sin is paid for, so that we don't have to labor under that guilt anymore. Jesus is the ultimate answer to David's prayer in Psalm 51. If you've never received that as the finished work for your salvation, come up here and let me pray with you. Everybody else. I want you to consider, is there something in this psalm that touched you? Something, maybe, uh, maybe it's that I never really felt guilty for my sin. Maybe it's that I really thought that the good stuff I was doing, I mean, I kind of know better, but I just, you know, I know God appreciates the good stuff I do, so I've been sort of thinking he was winking and nodding at my sin. Maybe it's that you've been so focused on getting what you know God wants you to have that you've neglected what God wants you to do, who he wants you to be, and who he wants you to transform. 
Let's just recommit ourselves to God's purpose in our lives. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.